This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R Films criticism show and podcast. I'm Paul Anthony Nelson and joining me in the cave tonight are Mondo Trasho, Sally Christie. Oh, I like that one. That's my second favourite one, the name that you've given me. Second favourite. Second favourite. Satanic Majesty. The Satanic Majesty is still, still in front. <laughs> and we have a late substitution tonight. Uh, <laughs> instead of uh, our regulars, Emma and Cerise, we have our regular substitute, the fabulous Flick Ford. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was wait- waiting to see where you're going to go with that one. I was hoping for a satanic based. Uh, <laughs> you you realise now that John Waters based. <laughs> yeah. Now that you've started doing this, Paul, have you dug yourself a grave? Like I have to think of these names every week. I'm going to top <laughs> yeah, myself. I know. This must be the pressure. Oh, it's, it's uh, like the throw tos are hard enough. Like these now with the nicknames, I'm just building. I'm just <laughs> yeah. banking a rod from my own back. <laughs> On tonight's show, we'll get up close and personal with an artist on the verge of a nervous breakdown in Thomas M. Wright's Acute Misfortune, witness the birth of a genre great in tonight's retro title, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, and envision what the world could look like in 21 years with Damon Gemmo's documentary 2040. Now, it's at this point, we've gotten all too accustomed with announcing, like, you know, eulogising celebrities. It's been, I think there's been one week this year where there hasn't been... <laughs> A eulogy. Yes, and this might. Show. This is the second. I has oh. n- nobody. I, yeah, not that I'm aware. of. I haven't forgotten. I feel like anybody. we're forgetting someone. Yeah. We're gonna like. <laughs> we're gonna go off air and then realise there was someone real. We need Cerise here. She's yeah, yeah. the Grim Reaper. Yeah, uh, we, <laughs> we're gonna get calls. It's gonna be like eh, this. You know, the obscure actor from this time died. Um, I, I, Julie Harris from um, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon and um, and the, the weirdly enough the last movie that screened at Acme mm. she died the other night that was about the only one I heard of um, you know we but need, yeah we need Cerise she's, she's good with this sort of thing we should probably be happy that no one's <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. just to sure. clarify I mean Vale Julie um, R.O.P um, fabulous career but yeah let's be happy that <laughs> a <bunch of> cultural <laughs> craters have been made this week um, so with that I guess we'll jump straight into the reviews so our first film for this week is Acute Misfortune. Eric Jensen, played by Toby Wallace, is an ambitious journalist who, at the tender age of 19, is assigned to write a Sunday news magazine article on the tempestuous Archibald-winning prize-winning artist Adam Cullen. Within moments of meeting, it's clear that Cullen is something of a loose cannon, abrasive and aggrandizing. but he wins Eric over by painting his picture while doing the interview, giving it to him as a gift. Once the piece goes into print, Adam's impressed with Eric's writing and offers him the chance to be his biographer. This begins a four-and-a-half-year relationship that begins as a sort of conditional friendship, soon becomes psychologically and even physically abusive, and eventually weirdly codependent. Sally, did you find this biopic to be a finely textured centrepiece you could happily display in your home, or a sketchy oil painting you might donate to the op shop? I would happily display this film in my home. I think this is... I can't sing the praises of this film enough. I didn't see it when it was on at MIF, so it was my first time seeing it last week, and I just loved it. I think it is such a brilliant Australian story, and it is a very Australian story, looking at that kind of... Australian masculinity that we see within Adam Cullen and I guess that, you know, his character doesn't really know what to do with that masculinity that comes through a lot. Um, 
I found this really fascinating. I went in knowing not a whole lot about Adam Cullen before I saw this film. What about you two? Did either of you really familiar with his work? Um, yeah, I, I perhaps... Uh, I, yeah, I was familiar with his work, but also with Eric Jensen, the journalist. Yeah, um, see, who was, Eric yeah. Jensen I was not familiar with at all, but, yeah, I just thought this was such an incredible film. I normally am going on about films being too long, but this is one that I wanted to go <laughs> for oh, a longer actually, run time. I think all films this uh, in today's episode were 90, 90 minutes, minutes, which Lit- is my perfect <laughs> run time. <laughs> Literally, in the order that we're reviewing them, 90, 91 and 92 minutes. Oh, really? Amazing. Yeah. Oh, John Waters would love that. He loves a 90-minute <laughs> movie. Oh, but, um, yeah, I just I found this really fascinating. And also what I was saying before about, I guess, that Australian masculinity that comes through with Adam Cullen in this film. Also, the subjects that he chose to paint. We um, saw... God, I can't even remember his name. One of the... um men that was responsible for Anita Cobby's death that he painted and we also see flashes of him watching the boys which of course is based on the Anita Cobby um, uh, murder and I think it's Travers 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 oh I think that's right Mm, yeah Yeah. I'm trying to remember (laughs) it's like it's it's T.S. yeah I think you might be right but yeah also he's interesting connections with crime um, that they didn't really explore in this film. I think that Adam Cullen was Chopper Reed's best man at wow. his wedding. Yeah. That, that kind of says everything you need to yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. There was a photo of Chopper Reed in his yeah, little collage Yeah, there was a really the brief um, and... photo of Chopper that we saw. And interestingly enough, this film I see is being compared with Chopper, the biopic of Chopper, um, quite a lot. And I can really? see why. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I can see why. There's a huge amount of intertextuality in the film, though, because you have... Uh, not only the portrait of Travis, but then later on the film The Boys is played within the film. Yes. And just even having um, David Henschel playing Adam Cullen just lying, like reclining back on his couch being like, bueno, bueno, and just like on repeat. I feel like it's so aware of this history in Australian cinema of Mm -hmm. focusing in on violent white men Mm -hmm. and... And kind of toes such a fine line between that glorification of these men and um, just and also investigating interrogating that uh, I don't know the relationship between uh, Jensen and Cullen is is incredibly uh, messed up and very toxic and violent like physically and emotionally mm-hmm. and it's kind of I think that the film is so um, masterful in in towing that line because it could so easily slip into, you know, Cullen is a really fascinating and engaging character and, and quite funny in parts, but it's a very sort of dry sense of humour. I think they never, Wright never glorifies him. I think it was interesting with things that they chose to omit from this film as well with Cullen in regards to his sexuality, um, which I feel was, you know, a, one of his big draws to Jenkins was that uh, he, you know, came out to him as being bisexual. And, um, yeah, that that isn't explored here. And I think that that was, I mean, it's implied. Mm, There's more than mm. one point where it's implied. But I thought that was also quite, you know, clever the way that they they did look at both of these men's sexuality in very different ways, mm. not overly explicitly. Actually, mm. the way that they introduce uh, Jenkins' sexuality was really, I thought, um, quite, I don't know, just quite 
considered they they don't sort of have it within the first I think it's not until maybe 30 minutes into the film that you realize even even longer yeah it felt like more than midway through yeah and and then you see him um with I think his boyfriend at the time and Mm -hmm. so and and then there's another um incident with uh, a man and a pub later on and so I, I thought that was actually really lovely that the way that they approached toxic masculinity and the intersection of that with with Jensen's own sexuality and and perhaps Cullen's repressed sexuality. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you say intertextuality. I think it's really interesting. I mean, one bit of real life intertextuality, because uh, again, I didn't know much more about Cullen than you two did. Um, but is Max Cullen is in the film playing Adam Cullen's father, and in real life, there uh, he was. Uh, Max Cullen was Adam Cullen's cousin. Oh really? Yeah, they're wow. actually related. Wow. Okay, I didn't realize that. I saw the name, the the surname of of course come up in the credits and I was like, "Oh, I must remember to look into that." And <laughs> didn't. <laughs> As I was cycling over, I was like, "Didn't do that." <laughs> Cuz yeah, I saw him there. It's like, "Is this is he was he what what's going on here?" Cuz I know, you know, obviously Max Cullen is a you know, a very recognizable actor mm. of Australian Australian stage and screen. But that's that's one bit of real life intertextuality. But one thing I found super um, indicative about this film is the fact that he's watching the fact that he's watching the boys at that point. And I feel like the boys has cast a twenty year long shadow over subsequent Australian cinema. And any, I feel like there's a generation of films, and this is very much one of them that attacks those sort of themes of that of that tox- toxic masculinity, of that um, masculine crisis, through that lens. They're all very great. And it's, 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 and it's sort of turned into a sub-genre at best and a bit of a cliche at worst. And it's really... I, I find it... I, I, I just walk into too many Australian films now where that, they're grey, cold... Spare films about mm. sad, aggressive, bast- sad, aggressive yeah, yeah. white bastards. It's like masculinity yeah. having its utmost crisis that, is yeah. what we see a lot in Australian yeah. cinema. And it's I, dudes. I saw that in. Um, I saw. I could think of that film Downriver, which came out of yes. this Aussie film that came out maybe two years ago. I really disliked that film immensely because I felt <laughs> that it fit exactly into that. Mm. You know, I, I, I was weirdly fond of that film, oh. actually. But, but it, no, you're absolutely right. But it deals in exactly the same territory, and that's the thing. It is like a subgenre of Australian film, and I'm kind of like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, as you, are, I'm kind of over it. And I, I like, I, I like this film for being a non-varnished uh, biopic about an artist. I like that it was warts and all. I like that it's. It acknowledged that there was some great art being created, but also this guy is, a, you know, a, cannon, a, a wrecking ball for any relationship that he has. Mm-hmm. And but it's, it's just the, it's the look and the feel, and it's always someone, you know, like again acting very much like David Wenham does in The Boys, is sort of you know sits back and studies someone in silence, and then calls him a fucking idiot or something, and then you know like and you know it's and it's just like they're all the same, like and you've even got. Daniel Henschel from Snowtown, which is another one of these movies. <laughs> yeah. And it just, the whole thing just felt like, and Henschel's great and he's great at oh, playing those characters. Yeah. 
Hinch was amazing. Yeah, but he was excellent. Yeah, he actually, I did um, him as an actor. He actually came in. I I saw this film at MIF last year, and it was one of my favourite films from the festival. Um, and I went. I work at a bookstore, and I went to work after the screening, and Dan- Daniel Henschel walked in. That <laughs> was really like, ah, were you scared? <laughs> I was a little bit yeah. scared. <laughs> it's like when I saw um, Daniel P. Jones from Hail Emil, and that's another um, Australian film um, by Emil Cotton Wilson. And when I saw Daniel P. Jones, who's such a menacing figure yeah. in that and in that film, and both men, I'll, I'll report, were very lovely and kind. But it really took me. It's hard to take the film. To take, um, just to shake it off. Yeah. I actually mm. found my experience of watching the film both times now have been a little bit upsetting. And the first time I was just, um, had someone who was uh, a man next to me who was sort of leaning into my chair and it was really unpleasant viewing experience for me at MIF. And then this time there's a line in the film where um, Cullen reveals that he, he says, um, he talks about... Um, attacking his one of his ex-girlfriends with a cattle prod and the man in front of me uh, started laughing at yeah, that Yeah, I had a couple of um, people in the cinema laugh mm. at that too yeah. um, when I saw it last That's, week. Yeah. And it was very uncomfortable. Yeah. I, yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I love going to watch these sorts of films in the cinema but I think that sometimes you can have that that discomfort is is not just in the film but how it's being then mm. re- how the crowd is responding and um yeah that was one that really it, it's a uncomfortable film i remember thinking like oh, i can't wait to the bit at the when we meet eric jensen's family because that bit was a bit lighter mm. and then i watched it again today and i was like it's, it's not, not much no. it's not really light at all but in comparison yeah. <laughs> and people are looking for that release valve yeah. in a film like this as well yeah. they're looking for there's that uncomfortable laughter it's like oh maybe that's funny and it's <laughs> no it's not and it could have been an awkward laugh I mean, maybe mm. it is a, it is set in this kind of direct way that if you, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting how they do have this weird codependent relationship that is hard to understand what either of them are getting from this relationship. And it's interesting that you mentioned, Paul, that we have this sort of cinema in Australia which explores toxic masculinity as very grey and all this, which I'm not denying we definitely do have that kind of cinema. But in all fairness cinema is a reflection of what is happening in our time which I definitely think that we do have that crisis happening in Australia and um yeah we're we're getting films come through which is reflecting how this is just not being explored properly in our Mm. society I think there's yeah and the follow-up line to that like Eric Jensen's question um to him was what did she do to make you do that and yeah, I, I thought, thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. such a – that line just really hung with me and I thought, oh, it's such a – It's a, t- a telling line yeah. about what that character's attitude – Yeah. His um, dialogue was really interesting, Toby Wallace, who played Eric Jensen in this. It was so restrained, you know, that there was points where you just thought he was so incredibly uncomfortable that he didn't know what to say, but then he would – you know, come out with this really pressing question mm. that I really enjoyed his character a lot. And it, it was completely believable that he was this very cocky, um, very young journalist. I mean, he's amazing that he's the editor of the Saturday paper. Is that right? I think oh, is that what he does? He's one of the yes. youngest. Yes, one of the youngest editors. Um, oh, I can't remember the statistic. <laughs> Anyway, he's very young to be doing an amazing um, job like that. So, uh, yeah, he was he's a fascinating character. And I thought that Toby Wallace plays him so well. Like, there's a real tenderness to him, but also this um, huge amount of confidence as well. You can see why he got 
got that job. Yeah, see, I, there was this thing with the character that I'm like, the very first scene we're introduced to him, he's coming away from that interview and he's like, uh, like he's pissed that he didn't get the right answers from this woman, this poor bereaved woman, because she gave stock answers and we're going to end up on page eight. He seems like a real cynic. I have trouble reconciling that this is the guy who goes two years of working on this biography before asking the question See, I found of whether there's a publisher. I found that I, I didn't question that with him asking about the publisher because I think that that is a naive thing that somebody that's really young and has gotten into an industry would do, um, just being sort of swept up in it all. And the way that we're introduced to his character and where he is being quite cocky, he's on the train and then that scene which you were just um, talking about, Paul. But he ultimately gets in this abusive relationship and we see him get worn down from that and then we really see, I think, his personality change from that, which I've, I found really quite mm. believable. It's interesting because the film sort of hinges... So we're talking about acute misfortune for those <laughs> of you who have just tuned in. The film really hinges on the differences between these two men, like sort of presenting them as like almost polar opposites. But especially in the early scenes, I think you see a lot of similarities yeah. and particularly their um, ambition. Like for both of them, they're incredibly ambitious men, quite um, self... Um, I don't know which they like sort of self indulgent mm. in different ways perhaps uh, Jensen through his his journalism writing and um, the w- the way in which he writes about his subjects and then Cullen with the way in which there's a great line where he's so Jensen's acting as his biographer and he's like this is a quote and then says exactly what he's going to say <laughs> like he's quoting himself live it's kind of this real se- sense of self importance that comes across in both mm. men yeah self mythologizing yeah for yeah, Cullen. yeah definitely. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I'm glad you two seemed to get more out of this than <laughs> I did. I, I was left super cold by it. I, I just couldn't really find a way in to care about either either of them. And while I like the unvarnished view, I just sort of was, yeah, I just felt like this has all been... It just made me want to watch The Boys again. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the, but it's definitely uh, definitely a lot of cool, uh, a lot of um, good stuff going also, for this film. Also, his, his debut feature, which is pretty amazing, that is, really strong mm, for, from Thomas... He's an actor, um, is it? Thomas Wright. Yeah. He was in Top of the Lake. And, yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it, if you're uh, looking for a fun night at the movies, please don't <laughs> laugh at the cattle pride line. Uh, Acute Misfortune is screening at selected good independent cinemas. You're listening to Plato's Cave. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, let's head back to a time long ago, before Halloween, when a young genre filmmaker was establishing his style with tonight's retro title, 1976's Assault on Precinct 13. (laughs) In the fictional mid-70s LA ghetto of Anderson, a sprawling multiracial gang known as Street Thunder have stolen a huge load of weapons, but when six of their number are gunned down by the police during the heist, the gang's four chief heavies wage war on Los Angeles as a whole cruising around the streets, chillingly lining up unarmed citizens in their sights and taking lives at random. One of these lives, the last victim you'd expect in a still-shocking, somewhat iconic scene, 
leads to a retaliation, which then leads the gang to chase a bereaved father into a decommissioned Precinct 13. Actually, Precinct 9, Division 13. They just thought the title sounded better as (laughs) District 13. Where recently promoted police lieutenant Ethan Bishop is acting as caretaker in the last few hours before it closes, along with secretaries Lee and Julie, and a handful of prisoners being transported to a maximum security state prison, chiefly the mysterious Napoleon Wilson and tough guy Wells. Soon, this unlucky group, expecting a slow night, are under siege and heavy fire from the seemingly endless gang, caught with few weapons, no communications and little bit cunning and salty wisecracks. Will they survive? Flick, did this make you want to make all your decisions from now on using the method of potatoes? (laughs) Yes. Um, I love this film so much. Um, the Can I just read out the tagline? Please. It is, The gang that swore a blood oath to destroy Precinct 13 and every cop in it. <laughs> it just, like, already sets you up for this, like... I don't know, it's just ridiculous but great. Um, there's so much fantastic banter between all the characters. Everyone's, like, super sassy and salty. Um and it has an amazing soundtrack. I was really into... They had synthy sort of soundtrack, um, apparently based on the score to um, Dirty Harry and um, also Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song. So I thought that was really interesting. And it kind of... It's the perfect soundtrack for this, like, bizarre little neo-Western. Um, of course, the infamous scene that you're talking about is the ice cream van scene uh, where we have this gentle tinkle of the ice cream... Uh, what do you call it? Jingle? Is that what they... Uh, yeah. Ice, you, everyone knows uh, what it ice is. Ice cream song? Ice cream song, <laughs> ice cream yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's just so... It's, so, it's such a quotable film. Like, I was thinking about how the... the so, the little girl... Uh, is it ruining it? Is it, are we allowed to... I mean, it's from 1976. I know. Quite it's, a bit of time to watch this film. The moratorium on spoilers. But the Look, th- yeah. it happens at the start of the film. I think... I, yeah. I don't think it's a spoiler. Yeah. I, I actually double-checked exactly when it... 30 minutes in. Yeah. How oh, well, is that? That's Bang on. Yeah. Well, no, maybe not 30 minutes. I was like... Roughly, roughly. <laughs> Sorry, I checked it. I didn't check it that well. But um, it's such a fantastic scene. Like, I think that's just amazing. Especially, you've got this um, baby blue ice cream van, and then this little girl who's um, just gets um, <laughs> wants she- to do a, a vanilla twist, but gets a regular vanilla. And to be honest, I really empathised with <laughs> having once been given the wrong ice cream. I <laughs> well, you would have gone d- back. Didn't yeah. get killed point blank by a by a hoodlum, but you know. Anyway, sorry, I'm, I had to bet. It's, um, it's amazing. Yeah, I really love it. <laughs> um, this film is a reminder of, I think, just the talent of John Carpenter. He's incredible. And I think that he's often associated with the first thing we think of when we think of John Carpenter is that he makes horror films. Um, and this is a beautiful reminder that he works across all different genres. You know, he's done musicals with Elvis, he's done sci-fi films, you know, he's done action, and of course he's done horror with Halloween. Um, but this really, really reminded me just of how diverse he is as a director. Um, this is essentially, like you said, Flick, this is essentially a Western film. And it's got that beautiful dirty grittiness of 70s cinema 
where, you know, you do have a child that gets shot. <laughs> 30 minutes in point blank. I love that like this and we've opened to the we've opened today's episode complaining about the lack of eulogies that we've had to read and now <laughs> 30 minutes into our show we're talking like, about wow. the delight that we took in a young girl being shot and, point blank. But I just there's something that I just love so much about this era of cinema with you know that we see in warriors and things like that mm. with these gangs roaming the streets and it's really ruthless and um it's just Sadly, it's not something we see on the screen anymore, I don't think, which is a real shame. It's nice to come... Well, it's not nice, but it's good to come away from a film and go, ugh, I feel yuck from watching that, you know? <laughs> but it's got a real take-no-prisoners attitude. It's great. That, mm. that, that completely um, involves you. I mean, this is... Uh, yeah, I'll fess up. This was this was my pick of the week. <laughs> and it's like... Because I, I, I want to direct people to, to watch stuff on streaming services that they might not... All the stuff they might not have seen. And this is like... This is, uh, like, uncut Carpenter. Like, this was made for $100,000. It was his first solo directing job. Oh, was it? Yeah, because Okay, I thought for some reason I thought it was his second, but no, that's Because he co-directed... Well, he directed... um, Co-directed Dark Star. Yeah, okay. With um, Dan O'Bannon. And it's... Actually, I think... Actually, I think you might be right. I think that was... uh, Dark Star... This is the weird thing. Dark Star is directed by by Carpenter and co-written and co-everything else with Dan O'Bannon, but it's so much, like, O'Bannon's aesthetic. O'Bannon did that with lots of films, though, where he just had his finger in every single other pie that was happening. Exactly. Apart from the director credit, yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like Carpenter. This feels like Carpenter. And there's stuff all over this um, that feels like that you'd see in Halloween two years later. Mm, there's the widescreen yeah. cinematography. There's the impressionistic lighting. There's the the um, and it's and it, it's interesting because this he establishes something in this that continues through Halloween, uh, um, the Thing, uh, Christine, and it's the villain you can't reason with. Mm. It's the force that keeps coming at you and keeps coming at you and keeps coming at you. And I love the fact that this gang are just like. They've like because they create this siege situation where these these uh, these plucky people are sort of you know trapped in this abandoned police station and the gang are circling them, kind of firing at them and then disappearing into the night and clearing away any bodies that get in the middle so they don't attract any attention so nobody calls any backup and it's so amazing and and it's this thing it's like and they're constantly they can't be reasoned with they'll just keep also too I love how. I love how progressive this film is in so many ways. Like you've yeah. got the African American hero cop, you've got the white criminal, you've got a super cool female character with the secretary um, Lee, who's fantastic, and the gang are like the most multiracial gang I've ever seen in a movie. It's like white, black, Hispanic, like it's just every yeah. Every... When I was rewatching this, there particularly towards the end of the film, I was so reminded of Night of the Living Dead. Yes, like. We- uh, there were a couple of scenes, I think even dialogue-wise, it was just, you can tell that that's been a really big influence on Carpenter, particularly with this film, um, you know, with the lead. And also the way that the gang was kind of crawling up out of the sewer, mm. almost kind of zombie-like. But then we see the influence that this has had on other films, you know. You go, okay, there's bits of Conair really likes this. and From dusk know. till dawn yeah, yeah, does this. Sure. And, mm-hmm. and there's, I mean, obviously the biggest influence on this film uh, is Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo, um, which is a, a siege film. Which uh, is screening at Cinemaniacs next month, I might add. Oh, get on that. Yes. That's a good little plug. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> happened organically. <laughs> yeah, nice. We, di- we didn't plan that, folks, really. It's a great film. 
Um, and and this is this is I love because I'm a fan of Howard Hawks's work, and this is like drive-in Howard Hawks. This is like seventies exploitation Howard Hawks. Like it, and the first time I saw, saw this because it's like a forty-three-year-old film. I only came to it last year. I'd heard about it for years and I'd never gotten around to watching it. And it wasn't it wasn't until about two thirds in that you look at the actress playing Lee um, Laurie Zimmer, like she even like is po- like looks like Lauren Bacall. Like is sort of has the the heavy lidded kind of eyes and is the like the way she's sort of delivering her lines and it's like oh my god her and Napoleon are totally Bogart and Bacall he's doing a Hawks film and it just blows my mind and the lines like you were talking flick before about the 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 the, um, the uh, snappy dialogue like mm. the dialogue is far snappier than the film of this like where this film emerged from has any right to be like in terms of being an ultra low budget exploitation film from the 70s that Carpenter wrote in like three weeks like how was the dialogue this good yeah it's actually quite funny as well like I was watching it lots of really really funny moments in it I was re-watching it in a sort of public space and I was embarrassed by how much I was sort of giggling along (laughs) with my giant uh, noise cancelling headphones on but yeah there's 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 so much humour in it and real liveliness to the character like I loved I just it was it was a delight to watch it honestly was I'm so glad you picked it for the our retro awesome um, and 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 there's a reality to the characters as well like mm. I love there's there's a one point where like um the cop reacts in these sort of ways where it's like like somebody drives out and he's like their hope for freedom and all of a sudden they hear it a shot and he's like uh, he's like uh, maybe it's a, a broke a blown tire <laughs> And then he just smashes something. And it's like he has that moment. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, yeah, there's this constant reality to the way that that keeps intruding into the film. And it's my favourite kind of genre is where you kind of get Real life, you know, real life quirks and stuff, and mix them into a heightened genre situation, mm. or you oh, get yeah. heightened genre characters and you know have them react the way pe- people might in real life. Don't they introduce us to Bishop with that um, line of dialogue where they're like, "There are no, ho- there- sorry, start again. There are no heroes anymore, Bishop. Only men who follow orders." And he's like, "Yes, sir." <laughs> <laughs> like, so it was like, it was, I don't know. I was just like writing down so many of the yeah. quotes, and then I'm like, "That's all I took. It was just quotes from the film." <laughs> I was completely unaware that they. Had had remade this film. I yeah. had no idea. Has it, have either of you seen that? No, no. in 2005 with Lawrence it's Fishburne and Ethan Hawke. It's got a pretty Hawk. good cast. Mm. And Gabriel Byrne. I Actually, think. to be honest, when you first suggested it, I thought that you had... Um... Picked that one. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, what's he doing? <laughs> Controversial, Paul. <laughs> Look, you know, I go for the deep cut. <laughs> yeah, I just... I like That's the thing. I feel like, like the... When I first saw this film last year, I got to the end and I literally cheered out loud at the end. Like, it's just, like, it's something so kind of charmingly old school, but, you know, classic Hollywood at the same time. Yeah, I I agree. There definitely is that classic Hollywood element that comes through in it, but it is also so cutting edge and such a, you know, dirty little grimy film, which is just (laughs) awesome. It's kind of funny that we're talking about um, we're all kind of squirming in our seats as we're talking about this and I feel like it's such a different um, feeling that we had from acute misfortune. It is. <laughs> we were like sinking into our seats and this one was really, I don't know, it affected us. I, don't know, I felt very affected by it and in a really fantastic way. Right, like, yeah. And also the soundtrack, I cannot under, underline that enough. It's such it's a excellent. good soundtrack. It's scored by John Carpenter himself. Yeah, it's amazing. And the bit, they've such interesting camera angles. There's this one scene in a car chase where it's an extreme close-up, um, probably a, 
regular close-up of a front headlight and it's just it holds it for so long and so you don't see the cars you just hear them and it's got it's perfectly teamed with this screech of the synth and it's just amazingly i don't know it's It's the thing it's so elegantly and beautifully put together like like that's there's a shot i think they they kind of you know put the camera on the back of the car at one point you've got this sort of shine of the car as it's driving along and then this rifle silencer poking out the window as it's pointing and it's like this is the creep it's like watching a shark like this is so creepy yeah um yeah i i can't say enough good like legitimately i think this is second only to the thing Amongst Carpenter's films, like I think it's amazing. I love Halloween. I don't know what Halloween's my favourite Carpenter film would be. <laughs> really? If I had to pick, I don't know. You should have prepared us if we were going to start. He's really stuff. bloody good. <laughs> I know. Now I'm thinking, what would my favourite Carpenter? I don't know. It's going to be Such a lot of dead air while we think. Yeah, it's a hard question. Escape from New York, or 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 in Carpenterland. <laughs> <laughs> some sense in there. Uh, I'm so glad you guys enjoyed this so much. And I urge everybody, if you've not seen Assault on Precinct 13, seriously, grab a pizza, grab whatever you drink, stream it on Amazon Prime or rent or buy from YouTube or iTunes, the original Assault on Precinct 13, not the remake. <laughs> be very <laughs> careful. It might be good. None of us uh, have seen it. It's true. Wonderful. It could be great. Just watch this one first. <laughs> You're listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. So our final film for this evening uh, is the new documentary from Australian actor turned director of socially conscious solutions-focused documentaries, Damon Gamow, 2040. Structured as a letter to his now four-year-old daughter, Damon Gamow's latest documentary sees him tiring of apocalyptic narratives around climate emergency and has him on a quest to search for tangible solutions that exist in the here and now that we, from the regular person to industry at large, can apply to make a real change and lower carbon emissions by 2040 and have some chance at all of arresting some of the monumental damage we've done to this planet. Sally, did you find this to be a great defence for the human race or just another reason why we should all die in fire? (laughs) I I do appreciate that this film um, had practical solutions to what we can do to help the climate emergency that we're in at the moment. Um, So I did take that away from it, that there were sort of practical things and I think that they're giving out some seeds and things at cinemas if you go to see this at the cinema. Um, I, it's really, it is a really accessible documentary and I think with that Sugar film as well, which was his previous film, mm. it really feels like it's geared towards high school students, which I guess in a way it is, um, which, you know, does make it easily accessible. But... That structure that he uses to make this engaging, I think, for younger people, and he also did the same thing in that Sugar film, I really don't enjoy. Mm. Like, they're kind of, I think there was one sort of sequence in this where he was talking to somebody and they were in a Monopoly, mm. on the Monopoly board in a car and it was animated and <laughs> that just doesn't do it for me. But I can see that being an engaging thing for younger people to, you know, break away from that kind of conventional documentary that we sort of see. So I guess that's why he employs those things. But I find it hard getting past them a bit, to be honest. Yeah, I I found it wasn't 
yeah, I like. I didn't find that sort of stuff as annoying in a, in that sugar film. I rather liked that sugar film, mm-hmm. but this one, yeah, I think you're right. It really poked me in the eye in terms of that sort of those sort of gimmicks and structure and what have you. Mm, I mean, I think. To be fair, we, we're not the target audience for this. It does seem definitely aimed at school kids. And I was thinking, um, I don't know, it's kind of strange watching this in the very recent aftermath of the federal election yeah. and the focus that climate change had on um, on the discussions that were going around and just the what the next sort of uh, couple of years are going to look like. And it was. I thought that one of the positive things about this film was, um, as you said, Sally, about the... the how practical the advice is and these ideas and how he goes through them. Um, there's also a lot of hope in it and, and it gives, rather than I suppose when we're thinking about the state of the world right now, there's a lot of despair and um, it almost can be, a te- there's a tendency to disengage when things get so depressing. And I think that giving young people, and it's definitely definitely targeted at a younger crowd um literacy around those ideas and some of the concepts and how they would work and i read an article by uh luke buckmaster and he was talking about this film and the way in which it probably would have been better suited to a tv series because some of these ideas are brought up and it just doesn't you know it kind of goes from one idea to the next and it's very you know like the changes into a little miniature thing and it's yeah as we said like kind of a bit gimmicky but there's also not that much detail on it and you can't I couldn't always get my head around like okay but what are the pros and cons why is this not a thing now and Mm. um I'm being a bit harsh but I think that there's there's so much that could there's so much more there and um similar to what um Buckmaster was saying that you know it'd be great for them to go into more depth with these and especially if it is an idea you know it's a it's a very much a an educational documentary so why not take this a bit further and maybe maybe he's lining it up for a tv series i mean what was it the sugar film was i've got the highest grossing non-imax australian documentary in history but it's oh, really? since, well, yeah. it's since been overtaken by um oh, has it? jennifer piedman's um mountain, mountain. yeah really yeah yeah um which i adored i thought that was an amazing doco um so anyhow there's kind of this this focus then potentially it will get changed into a tv series who's i mean I'm guessing that's why it's been useful. One thing that I did really enjoy about this, which, you know, gave me some sort of hope, was how um, knowledgeable the young people that he he spoke to in his travels around the world were about the current situation. And I think we're seeing that a lot with, you know, high school students going and protesting, um, having their voices heard about their future. Uh, I, I do think it's really great how young people are incredibly educated about the sort of climate emergency that we're going through and they're taking their time to educate themselves. So it must be, you know, well, it it is a real, I guess, something that they're concerned about. I think when I was probably 13, I was concerned about quicksand, but, um, (laughs) you know. (laughs) That's so specific, Actual quicksand. (laughs) Actual quicksand, but that was my... is it quicksand a myth? Have I, I uh, found it once. Oh, oh my story. god, that's a story for another time. <laughs> anyway, I used to be freaked out when I used to see it in movies. Yeah, like, oh my you god, see it in cartoons, it. and you'd be like, okay, I'm going to fall in quicksand one day. It happened. But um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do find it incredible how you know knowledgeable these young people are, and I think that's excellent because if we're looking at something like this where there are practical solutions, it is hopeful that perhaps they will, you know, take them on. I, I agree, although there's one English 
child in this film who's quoted a couple of times. It's like, your parents literally read The Guardian to you, don't they? <laughs> like, it was just, oh, they have to, and the legislation for deforestation. It's like, no, 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 that is not coming out of you. you know, the, 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 your parents have been She was the one that I active. saw and I was like, oh, God, I only thought about quicksand when I was her age. I didn't know what the legislation was. Well, your parents probably didn't drill The Guardian into your chapter <laughs> and verse every morning. That felt a little precious. Yeah... Yeah, I I think that's the thing. I last year we were really taken with a my partner and I were really taken with a series that was on ABC from one of the ex Chaser guys called War on Waste, mm-hmm. and that was hugely persuasive in both telling us some things we didn't know and also illuminating what we could do in the here and now as anybody could do. And that's what I found with this. I found really frustrating. It was stuff that's like, okay, I love the idea of the, you know, the the sharing the solar panels and everybody, you know, draws power from each other. But it's like, it's incredibly expensive to get solar panels in your house right now. I can't afford it. Yeah, that's it. And maybe. it's like, I would love to. But, and, and same with like, oh, and then I don't know if I want to drive in a robot car, you know? Yeah. And it's like, uh, yeah, we do ride sharing where we can. But it's like, and again, robot cars, it's like, he literally is driving a prototype. He says, I'm driving a prototype. And it's like, well, this isn't commercially available. You know what I mean? Like, it was like the, the, the solutions weren't that accessible. But isn't, isn't the premise this is for his daughter in, like, 2040? So isn't the idea that by that time there'll be... But I think it's stuff we're meant to do now. So mm. once his daughter gets to that point in 2040, the world isn't dying in a ball yeah. of screaming fire. Yeah. I, yeah. And, okay. and, and it sort of felt like, yeah, like I, I like the optimism of it and I like the, I like the constructiveness of it, but I just found like it could have been more... If, if you're trying to deal with high schoolers especially, and that's the thing, I didn't necessarily... I didn't feel from the outset that it was targeted at high schoolers. It was only once watching it, it's like maybe this isn't you know for adults yeah I, and, I, did, and, I had the same thing i didn't feel like it was marketed that way but then when i began watching it i was like okay this is not targeted hang on. me what about the honey i shrunk the kids style of <laughs> wasn't that a bit of a yeah, again um, not in the promotions until you start watching it you're like what the hell is going yeah. on here and, okay. and and the whole thing with the um and you know um I think one thing I, I will get a, give a credit with is I think it's trying to uh, engage, uh, uh, trying to start a large conversation. And if you go to the website, there's you know the, the, you can get more practical tips. Like yeah, there are joining lots of groups resources and, there. Yep. And there's actually a um, there's a web browser platform called uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name at the moment, but there's um, essentially the, they spend their ad revenue on um, planting trees. So and you can ex- install it into Google and and that becomes your browser and mm-hmm. it's and it's not a Google support like you know it's a um, independent company, um, yeah and things like that and things that we can do in the here and now to benefit those. So yeah, I think more stuff like that would have helped. More you know childish gimmicks might have helped. Yeah. And 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 uh, the, the how old did the de- oh the the you know the uh, uncool mum and dad jokes oh. like it was just like oh I'll give it a rest. Yeah, I think that whole like expository or reflexive doco style if you don't like sorry this is a bit harsh but if you don't like the documentary maker sometimes it's quite jarring to, yeah. <laughs> to come, pop up all the time it's like oh just the jokes it's so bad yeah some some might call that the michael moore rule yeah. uh, <laughs> i have nothing against him but others do um you can catch 2040 uh screening now at all good independent cinemas You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Sally Christie, Flick Ford and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discussed Acute Misfortune, which is screening at selected independent cinemas. 
the original and best, Assaults on Precinct 13, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. Hey, you haven't seen that remake. <laughs> Might be better. Sell the remake to Booster. <laughs> That's what we're doing on next week's show, isn't it? We're doing the remake yeah. next week. <laughs> Compare and contrast. Hey, I want your favourite John Carpenter's next week. Uh, and we were also discussing 2040, which is screening at all good independent cinemas. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R on Demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at triplear.org.au. Next week, we will be digging into Rocket Man, Brightburn, and our retro title, the 1998, uh, 1988 Australian classic, Shame. A huge thank you to Phyllis uh, Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast, Killer Carl Chapman for panelling the show, and Lethal Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.